everything in our economies, everything in our lifestyle really does ultimately come from nature. It's about where stuff comes from and what stuff is made from. Whatever you buy, keep it in circulation. Don't throw it in the bin. And once you switched and you're like building something sustainable, it's super cool. Nothing can stop you. Like, uh, it's a new sexy. <laughs> Welcome to Fashion Our Future, the podcast where we explore the solutions to make the fashion and luxury industry more sustainable and circular. My name is Lauriane Meulière, I'm 31, I'm a French journalist, entrepreneur and fashion lover living in Paris. In this podcast, I went virtually all over the world to collect the words and knowledge of the people who are working behind the scenes to make change happen. Together, we'll go beyond the labels on our clothes to understand their impact on the environment and the game-changing solutions that will shape the future of fashion. So hop on, it's going to be an exciting journey that will empower you with concrete knowledge and hope for the future. Pop quiz time! Keeping in mind everything we've learned in the first episode, which part of the fashion supply chain has the most impact on the environment and more specifically, biodiversity? If you answered the production and processing of raw materials, you're correct. Remember, everything we use in our lives comes from nature and relies on healthy and rich biodiversity. Thanks to Dr. Helen Crowley and Sanjayan, We understood that the fashion industry relies on nature because that's where raw materials are from. The problem is that poor agricultural practices are damaging the environment and the biodiversity. Think about land use, water and air pollution, waste and water consumption. That's why it's urgent to encourage and reward regenerative agriculture because it offers a durable solution to extract raw materials without damaging the environment from which they're sourced and, at the same time, regenerating them. Question number two. What else can we do to build a sustainable way forward? If you don't know the answer, that's fine, because that's what the podcast is here for. In the second episode, we're going to take everything we've learned about raw materials to see how fashion brands and groups can act upon that. Remember when I talked about pulling up the thread of our clothes in episode one? Well, that's exactly what brands need to do. If they want to lessen their impact, they need to make sure that they use raw materials that are responsibly sourced, right? Sounds simple. At least that's what I thought. But I discovered that it's way more tricky to trace raw materials, even for the brands who make our clothes. And that's it. We're touching upon the keyword here, traceability. I hope my Cliff Notes version is helpful, but do you know what would be 10 times better? Hearing from the experts. First, let's get back to school, literally. The person you're about to hear from is Andréane Lemieux, professor at the IFM, Institut Français de la Mode, which is one of the most prestigious fashion schools in the world. Here, she gives us a quick explanation. First, what is traceability and its difference from transparency? Second, why it's fundamental? And third, why it's not that easy? 
before talking about traceability and transparency, I think we have to see the difference between the between both the terms. Yeah. Transparency is to display information, to decide or not to communicate on an information. And this is the case, but not just the brand to the customer, but also upstream the chain between the suppliers and all the stakeholders. So mm -hmm. there's a question of transparency of the information. Traceability, it's the capacity to trace, to identify, to control all the information relative to the component, the material, the process, in order to manage this data set. Transparency, display information, traceability, the capacity to identify and control the data along the chain, and upstream, but also downstream the value chain. Let me quickly explain here. Upstream the supply chain refers to the raw materials, the transformation and production processes, while downstream is the opposite end, where products get distributed and delivered to the final customer, first-hand, but also second-hand, etc. Keep that in mind, because the words will pop again during the episode. If you want to improve, you must measure, and to measure, you must know where it comes from. So if you're not traceable, you cannot measure and you cannot improve. You cannot make the right decision. You cannot reduce your environmental impact and you cannot create positive social impact. That makes traceability one of the priority of the industry. According to Andréanne, we know that 80% of the environmental impact comes from the upstream supply chain, meaning the raw materials production and transformation. But actually, only 34% of what is put on the market has a notion of traceability. When it comes to tracing cotton up to the farmer that cultivates it, only 17% of the products are concerned meaning a very small amounts of products are fully traceable. Why, you may ask? Let's hear it. In the last decades, we saw globalization, complexity uh, in the supply chain. We were in a, a strategy of developing more and more, more and more styles, more and more collection, always faster, always cheaper. So... Instead of simplifying and working with the same suppliers and developing, uh, uh, reducing the impact, uh, we went totally at the opposite and exposed all the supply chains. So that makes globalization mainly and this strategy of quick response and developing more are some of the main reasons of the complexity of supply chains today. Now that we know what we're talking about, it's time to ask the industry leaders how they're tackling the problem. Do they trace their raw materials? Do they measure their impact? That's what I've asked Apoor Gupta, who is also known at Caring as the sustainability futurist. Fancy? Let's hear what that means. My actual title is Sustainability Future Thinker, and we have to understand the reason why Caring created this position. It's because the field of sustainability is changing so dramatically, right? And at the same time, many companies are thinking about how can they better align their products and their services to meet the needs of the developmental needs of society, but also by not crossing the boundaries of our own eco ecology. 
And that requires a tremendous amount of thinking, a tremendous amount of research into, you know, what are the solutions out there that can promise long bets for a company so that, you know, we don't solve one problem but create another. And so a large majority of my role involves thinking and researching about where can we as a group uh, make a proactive effort what kind of new business models we can start looking into, not just for caring to become one of the most sustainable companies in the world, but also how to open source that further or create new consortiums or industry solutions where others can join in. For us, nature is our business, right? We use materials that are directly derived from biodiverse ecosystems or species. Right. So if you think about cashmere, cotton, leather, wool, precious metals. So the very health and population of these ecosystems is sort of the beating heart of our business. Good. Show me the whole thing from the beginning. In the first episode, Dr. Helen Crowley quickly mentioned a tool called the EPNL, the Environment, Profit and Loss. But here's a quick reminder. It's an open source tool created by Caring that measures the impact a company's activity has on the environment. Essentially, now the industry can put concrete numbers behind practices that used to be quite opaque, as Andréanne Lemieux said. But how does it work? Can it be used by different brands? Apurve dancer these questions and more. So we have multiple different programs underway. Uh, where we sort of measure our own impact on these bio-networks. I think the first one we can talk about is our environmental profit and loss mm -hmm. uh, tool. It's called the EPNL. And essentially, it's a tool that Caring developed to help us understand where our impact even lies to begin with, right? So we, we sort of went down our entire value chain and developed a tool which visualizes the impact that we as a business are having on carbon emissions, on water use, on land use, air pollution, waste, so that we can really see how much of nature are mm -hmm. we using at which part of the business and how much. Until you measure something, you can't manage it. And so after developing this kind of tool, we recognize that a majority of our impact is at that raw material stage, right? When we are procuring cotton, for instance, cotton is a very thirsty crop. It requires a lot of water. So that water impact is related to caring. So that is the tool that sort of we developed, which was a pioneering tool. It's open source. Many other companies can use that methodology and apply it to their business as well. And that sort of helped develop so many different programs on the back of that, because we could look at our own impact, visually look at where our impact lies across all of these areas, and then develop very targeted solutions on how we can help mitigate some of that impact. What is your secret? We develop the expertise with researchers, scientists, with experts in this field to understand what good looks like, work with our own partners on how they can adopt some of these practices so that it's good for their farm, their field, and ultimately the raw materials that we procure as well. 
So the ambition is that within five years, we will transition six times the land use of our own supply chain into regenerative spaces. So that equates to almost one million hectares of land. So what I'm trying to sort of explain over here is that the way we approach sustainability is that we will recognize a topic area. We will then work with a lot of partners. We will develop the expertise around it, work with our partners to implement that expertise into actual practices, continue to measure our impact based on those activities, and then ensure that through a very publicly committed target, others are being inspired by the same kind of practices as well, because solving any of these things alone is not possible. We don't compete on sustainability with other companies. So everything that, you know, we do, all of the expertise that we gather on some of these topic areas as well, whether it is standards for raw materials or production processes, these are all open in the sense that they are, yes, physical PDFs that people can find and they can sort of, you know, use them in relation to their own business model. So what we want is for other people to not start from zero or to start from scratch. We've already developed all of these materials. You can now, you know, join from step five onwards or whatever it mm -hmm. looks like for your company. I would like to add that we go a step further. So it is not just about creating tools and then putting them online and, you know, waiting for somebody else to use it. But we actually sort of help develop some coalitions as well around these topic areas. So for instance, you know, Caring has been one of the leading companies behind the development of the Fashion Pact or the Watch and Jewelry Initiative. So what we do is we gather partners within our industry and associated industries into some of these kind of industry groups and consortiums so that we can all talk about this at the same time as well. And that really does go at the heart of sustainability being pre-competitive for us. I want to help all of you find a solution. At this point of the conversation, I wondered about the financial aspect of things. Let's be honest, we're talking about companies here and industries. Can sustainable practices become profitable economically and therefore maybe facilitate the ecological switch even more? I asked Purv about that. Another thing that I didn't mention earlier the EPNL does is it assigns a monetary value to each of our impact across the supply chain, right? So if we are using X amount of water in Y part of our supply chain, then how much does it cost? And that changes based on where we are using the water, right? If we're using water in a place where water is scarce, that will be more expensive. If we're using water in a place which is abundant with fresh water, then that figure will be different. So the EPNL does that calculation as well. So what it helps us at Caring to do is actually talk to our investors in the same language as business performance on sustainability as I well. I see. Now we can't do that. So it is, a, you need to account for that first part of that relationship as well with nature. And then you would see that, you know, fundamentally business models will have to change because we cannot just keep taking from Mother Earth. Remember, we've talked about regenerative agriculture in episode one. 
But there are two other key priorities to minimize the raw materials ecological impact. First, circularity. And second, innovation. So for me, you know, they're really two critical priorities that we need to start thinking about, specifically if we're looking at raw materials and our industry. So one, like really reducing the use of new virgin materials and increasing repair, recycle, and sort of reduction trends as well, right? Like there is no magic formula and really it is that simple. You know, old wisdom tells us that the most sustainable clothing that you currently have is the one that's already in your wardrobe, right? And that's really the principle that with which caring abides by as well. For us, you know, true luxury is luxury that lasts. And from a business perspective, we need to work much harder to make our own operations much more circular. You know, how are we extending the life cycle of our own products even once they've been bought. So if you make them with good materials, they will last. At the same time, how can we use our resources more efficiently so that there's less waste in the world as well? So that's definitely number point number one. And then second is investing in scientific and technological breakthroughs because, you know, we alone cannot have the impact that we need to see to, you know, avert crisis like climate change or uh, tackle waste in the world. But what we can do is develop new methods, standards, tools that the entire industry can use so that we can collectively reduce our ecological and social cost that this industry is associated with. You know, if we started properly valuing what we take from nature, then the entire system would change. Then that relationship changes. We have to do more. But I think what needs to remain constant, and I hope our listeners will remember this, is that if we can continue living in a world of crisis, we can also continue living in a world that is constantly solving them. And that will be my hope for the entire industry and for everyone listening as well. Thanks to Apurvin Sites, we know that there are multiple paths to follow at once if we want to address the problem efficiently. Brands need to trace, measure, and improve. But what about the brands that are aiming to change but are lacking the tools to achieve it? To find out, let me take you to La Caserne in Paris, which is Europe's largest sustainable fashion accelerator hub, to meet with Camille Legal, co-founder of Fairly Made. She may have a solution. So Fairly Made is a software that allows brands to trace the journey of the product and to calculate the impact of those same products. And when we say impact, we mean social impact, environmental impact, traceability, recyclability, and durability. And those five pillars are very important because at Fairly Made, we have this vision of multi-criteria for brands to have a clear vision on the impact, but also for final customer. Because we are what we call B2B, uh, so business to business uh, platform, but we also speak with the final customer. And it's very important to us because we deliver QR codes for brands to communicate with those uh, final customer.
what we call traceability in our scoring at Made. It's really what is happening before the store and before the warehouse. So it's really all the steps uh, required to uh, produce a garment. And it actually reminds me uh, the origin of uh, Fairly Made, where with Law, when we started the, this uh, crazy adventure, we went to visit more than 200 factories and uh, really for us to understand and decide that the methodology would be uh, related to those five criteria, we needed to see the workers, we needed to see the processes, and we needed to understand what was happening behind those clothes. And that's actually what we try to provide through the QR code. It's some pictures Mm. of the factories, it's some information regarding the garment journey. And this is so key, according to us, for the final customer to do a proper choice uh, when uh, buying the clothes. So true! As shoppers, it's super interesting to get these pieces of information. As we continue chatting, Camille specified that brands don't usually deal directly with factories, but with agents that represent them. This system of intermediates makes traceability very difficult as there is no direct access to factory standards. That's why it is fundamental that companies like Fairly Made help them get access to these resources. But to what extent are they actually used to drive change? Fairly Made is a B2B platform. So in the business model, basically, we work with the brands directly and it's B2B2C in the rich, meaning that we speak with the final customer as well. But the B2B platform means you have a secure access and platform uh, with all the detailed information. And the first usage of this information is private. It's the one that the brands take as a a new information, as a sustainable information regarding the product. And they really take it as an improvement to know where the product comes from, Uh, not only the manufacturing, but the yarn, the weaving, the dyeing, the raw material. And really often they discover a lot of things. So as I mentioned, we needed between five to 10 factories to make a garment. So the first thing is discovering a lot of elements. Then um, it's a matter for them to uh, improve them, uh, their production uh, sourcing and production techniques while doing this assessment before launching the product. So it means that it's no longer the production teams, but maybe the uh, studios or the development teams that will use Fairly Made to make sure that they are developing a right product. And in the end, it's true, once they really think that's the time for them to communicate, they use the tool to communicate. So either it's an e-commerce platform and they use a widget uh, really to offer the same experience as if you were in the store and you scanned the QR code. Here is an interesting fact. A brand new jumpsuit can travel 40,000 kilometers before reaching a warehouse. But what happens after? It continues its journey into our wardrobes, it's watched and worn, and then maybe it's sold on a second-hand platform and goes into another wardrobe, etc. What's really cool about Fairly Made is that it can measure the impact of that jumpsuit every step of the way. It's called the Life Cycle Assessment, or LCA, a process of evaluating the effects that a product has on the environment over the entire period of its life. Within the uh, life cycle assessment, you take into consideration a certain number of washing, uh, a certain number of uh, uses. So 
those ones are, I would say, averages, but it's also the interest of having the traceability downstream after buying this first item, for instance. You'll have your QR code fairly made on the uh, jumpsuit. And it's interesting as well for the secondhand uh, owner to get the same information regarding the impact of its garment. And actually, it's interesting to have this kind of um, information regarding the downstream because a an impact, the impact of a jumpsuit as a second or third time and third uh, usage will be less than at the sure. first uh, purchase. To me, it's amazing to have access to all these informations as a consumer, but maybe it's too much for others. I think there are different types of customers, but you're right, there are some customers that uh, need a quick and uh, digest information. So our role as a third party is to get all this information, provide a calculation and deliver this QR code maybe with an ABCDE grade. And this is enough for some customers. But you have other customers uh, that will dig into this information and will take their phones, scan the QR code and will be very happy to find this information. So what kind of consumer are you? It's incredible that there are tools and solutions available that can demystify the entire life cycle of a garment how it goes from point A straight to our closets. There is no doubt that transparency, especially when it comes to sustainability, will only be beneficial for the industry, the environment and the consumer, helping fashion lovers like you and me to make more conscious decisions. Now, to end this episode, let's go back to the IFM to talk further with Andréanne Lemieux, What's her take on the solutions available to improve traceability and the steps forward? The good news, if I can talk about good news also, many technologies are emerging. In traceability, you have, of course, all digital traceability. We're talking about blockchain more and more. But we also have physical technology, uh, physical traceability initiative that will support the blockchain, support the digital, is complementary. I don't think we will have one miracle solution. It's the interoperability between different technologies, digital and physical, that will really be the answer. The entire transformation in sustainability is very deep. We're talking about the transformation in the value system. So it makes the change management much deeper and much harder. So yes, it takes time. We don't have so much time, so it's more uh, intense. Do you know what Andréanne does to accelerate the change? She trains future industry leaders. I told you that she is a professor at the AFM but she's also the director of the IFM Caring Sustainability Initiative, and she's full of hope. Four years ago, when I joined IFM, the idea was really to build a sustainability research chair that was sponsored by one of our major partners, Caring Group, really to pursue two main objectives. The first one was to train all our students, so our 1,200 students, to the sustainability values to really accompany them to become change actors in the industry. And the second one was to contribute uh, to the scientific research, with, which is a, a bit poor 
in sustainability for the fashion industry. So concretely, I'm managing PhD uh, candidates and I'm myself involved in uh, many scientific research projects. The motto of the program, it's let's go change the world. <laughs> you can ask all my students every every week, uh, every uh, time we do a meeting at the end, it's let's go change the world. How can't you be fired up after hearing that? And not only is Andréanne tackling the academic side of things, but she also told me about the hands-on side of things, the IFM Student Contribution Project. She told me about what they're doing in Ghana and Pay attention. Perk up those ears and be on the lookout for an important keyword. Ghana is a country receiver from North Hemisphere of the second-hand market. Just to give you a, a concrete example, they receive 25 million garments every month. They remanufacture at least 60%. They manage to... Uh, mend, uh, upcycle, uh, remanufacture in, uh, of course, emergency uh, <laughs> uh, context. Huh? They don't yeah. have uh, a lot of resources, sometimes not even electricity. They manage to upcycle 60% of 25 million garments every month. What do they do with it? They resell it, but not at the right uh, valorization. So we're going to help them to revalorize and to uh, develop new markets. Uh, we're thinking, uh, so my students are working uh, already with them. We work with the OR Foundation, maybe that you know, directly there. And we're going to go visit to meet with the retailers to really develop levers for them to gain more with uh, what they do because this is a real model of circular economy. What we can learn about them, it's how they do, the techniques, the skills they have. And uh, maybe one day be, uh, uh, we can be ambitious. We're thinking about this manufacture for justice uh, to really industrialize also this upcycling uh, process that they do over there. So did you catch the keyword? I think it might work better on a circular canvas. It's circularity. You've heard it with the example of Ghana. There is a lot of waste coming from the fashion industry. So what if, instead of take, make, waste, we took another route? As you said, take, make, waste, that's the linear process. We've been taking natural capital, substituting it to generate financial capital. Now we know that we attain some limits that we're destroying and this uh, environment. So how do we regenerate those natural systems? So that's the third pillar of circular economy. So how do we repair what we took from this capital? And how do we regenerate it? And how do we avoid taking virgin material to virgin resources from the capital? Uh, and that's how uh, the circular economy comes into uh, mm. the question, because How do we use and reuse and keep uh, in use uh, as long as we can the materials? And, and how do we eliminate waste? We were talking about waste, textile waste in the South. That's a real problem. How do we use that to re-inject it in the, in the economy to become the resource? Well, thanks to Andréanne, we have our perfect transition to the third episode. What if we change our entire system? 
But before that, I think it's time for a quick recap of what we've learned today. I hope you were taking notes because this was an information-packed episode. We started with one question. How can brands better source their raw materials, considering their impact on the environment and the biodiversity? And what we've learned is that first, they need to know where their raw materials come from, meaning being able to trace their origin. Then they can measure their impact. Then they can take action to improve that impact. And then they can share that information with their customers. <laughs> yeah, what a journey. To help people change the game, that's why some companies like Caring have developed their own open source tool and made it available to other brands free of use. Remember the EPNL? Some companies also get help from startups like Fairly Made in order to access information that will help them make better decisions and communicate the lifecycle assessments of their products to their customers. All over the world, digital and physical tools are being developed to help brands collect authentic information regarding their upstream and downstream supply chain. And I think it's worth mentioning that future generations are being trained to have sustainability as part of their core thinking by enthusiastic professors like Andréanne. Ultimately, I was just amazed to discover at the end of the episode that by tracing the origins of a waste product, remember the example of Ghana, we can collect and use this information to recycle it accordingly and reintroduce it into a virtuous circular system. Now you get it too. Traceability is essential to deeply change fashion industry supply chains. Slowly but surely switching from the old linear model, take, make, waste, to a circular one that make, use and reuse. Now the question is, wouldn't it be easier to just recycle the existing raw materials that are used to make our clothes? Well, you'll have to tune in to episode 3 to find out. See you!